So uh, Isaiah is a huge book, right? It's the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It's called, uh, the Isaiah is called the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament. Well, I think this is like the biggest chapter, I believe, in the whole book. Some think it's Isaiah 6, which is the vision of God. Yes, that's, that's a peak. Uh, this is the summit. Uh, so we are in Isaiah 53. So how are we going to begin? Well, here's how we're going to begin. According to Yellowstone Park literature, there's a 1.1 in a 2.7 million chance that you'll be attacked by a grizzly. Okay? So 1 in 2.7 million. So some of you really get into going to Yellowstone, don't you, with all your bear spray and all that kind of stuff. So just know the stats are it's 1 in 2.7 million. But I know, because you're thinking, if you're my wife, you're thinking, I will be that one. I know you, and many of you are like that. I don't even, I'm like, 2.7 million? Uh, All right, so there's been eight deaths, which means there's been eight deaths by a grizzly in 150 years. That's one more than trees spontaneously breaking and falling on people and killing people in the park, Okay. Legend says, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Grizzlies are the apex land predator. I'm sorry to inform many of you, it's not the lion, and it's not the tiger, and it's not the hippo. It is the grizzly. So Brady, a college wrestler, out hunting uh, for antlers. Um, They call them uh, elk, moose, mule deer. When they shed them, they're like $200 a pop. So he and his buddy Kendall his wrestling teammate, his dear, dear friend, uh, are out in the woods, and so Brady did not have a chance. Uh, The grizzly hit him head-on right in the chest and drove him from 30 yards and was mauling him the whole way. Kendall, who was watching it, said, quote, he bounced off the ground like a basketball. Now, you're Kendall. What do you do? The grizzly's mauling your buddy. You're 30 30 yards from him. Well, he said, I couldn't believe how fast and vicious it was. He said he had three thoughts. Despair, run. And the last one was, he'll be dead in 30 seconds. So what does he do? He charges the grizzly. And he jumps on his back. And he starts ripping the hair, the fur, off the back of its neck. Now, there's a reason that experts say the only hope you have if you come in contact with a grizzly, the only hope you have to survive a grizzly attack is to play dead. That's your only hope. That's what experts say. The grizzly became this indomitable power. He became sheer violence And he turned from Brady and turned to Kendall. Drove him into the ground. Kendall said, quote, it was a gross bear. It smelled like meat and guts and nasty stuff. Now, I can't go into describing what happens next because it's absolutely too gruesome. But before Kendall passes out, his last thoughts were, so this is it for me. You can read the rest of the story yourself, but both boys survive. Investigators, these are grown 
I was going to say a bad word, grown men, wildlife men, uh, arrive at the scene, and they said there was blood everywhere. You couldn't shake the feeling that the bear was in the brush somewhere watching you. We couldn't wait to get out of there. So these boys wake up sharing the same hospital bedroom, and Brady says when he wakes up and he sees Kendall over there, this is the first boy that got mauled. Kendall's the one that jumped on the bear and attacked the bear, and he looks at Kendall, and he said, quote, I couldn't stop looking at him. He saved my life by knowingly giving me his own. So Brady's dad rushes to the hospital, right? So this is Brady's dad, and he runs into the room. And don't miss this. This is what he says. I couldn't stop looking at him. He saved my boy's life. And over and over again, all day, he kept looking at him saying, you saved Brady. You saved Brady. I couldn't stop looking at him. Isaiah 53, the Bible, God says to you right now, to every one of us this morning, He says, when you finally, this is what the text is saying to you and me, when you finally see Jesus as the man of sorrows, you can't stop looking at him. So let's stand as we take a look at this man of sorrows. All right, so who has believed what he has heard from us? If you have an ESV, you have a footnote, and there's a reason because there's a better translation. It goes like this. Who could ever believe it? Who could ever believe it? That was the response of both Brady and his dad. Who could believe it? Sheer disbelief, shocking amazement. How did he do this? They couldn't stop taking their eyes off him. The book of this Isaiah 53 begins like, who would ever believe this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the arm of the Lord in Isaiah in the Old Testament is God. So it's God's arm rolled up for action. The arm of the Lord is a big image in the Exodus. It's the arm of the Lord. It's God himself in action, saving, rescuing, delivering, redeeming. For he, the arm of the Lord, God in action, grew up before him. That's so strange. Well, before him, when you look at it in the Old Testament, it only refers to God. So here's what you've got. You've got the arm of the Lord growing up before God. So you have God growing up before God. Amazing. (laughs) Unbelievable. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. This is referring to him being a human. So he, the arm of the Lord, become human, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He, the arm of the Lord, become human, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, the arm of the Lord, become human, 
has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, the arm of the Lord, become human, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, the good news God, has laid on him the arm of the Lord become human, the iniquity of us all, you and me. He, the arm of the Lord become human, was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Know that this lamb connects with sheep, so he's taking on the ones that went astray. And like a sheep that was before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he, the arm of the Lord become human, was taken away. And as for his generation, the arm of the Lord's generation, that's the A.D. generation. That's the Romans and that's the Israelites at the time of Jesus, the arm of the Lord become human. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they, this is the early A.D. generation of Jew and Gentile around the arm of the Lord become human generation, They made his grave, the arm of the Lord's, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Do you see how specific this is? This is so specific that skeptical Bible experts cannot get over. How could Isaiah, how could this be so clear, so accurate, so historically true? How could Isaiah have known about a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea that would give up his family wealthy burial site? to bury the king. How could they know this? So they can't. They won't accept it. It's so clear, so concise, so historically accurate that we have four Isaiahs, right? No one will believe it, but it's right there. Although he, the arm of the Lord become human, had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. This is an amazing passage, and would you cause us to finally see the man of sorrow? So, Jesus, would you show up as the man of sorrows? Would you speak us back to life again as the man of sorrows? And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so when you finally see Jesus as the man of sorrows, you can't stop looking at him. I can't stop looking at him. Did you know that no one in Isaiah 53, though, is looking at him? Did you see that? It's amazing. I mean, look at verse 2. There's no form. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. In verse 2, no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. No one's looking at him. Verse 3, from one whom men hide their faces. Again, not looking at him. Verse 3, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't look at him. No one in Isaiah 53 is looking at him. Why? Because we're not looking for the man of sorrows. The reason why we're not caught up as a Christian or as someone investigating Jesus and say, I can't stop looking at him. The reason why we're not caught up and I can't stop looking at him is because we're not looking at the man of sorrows. We're looking, if we're Christians, and Christian teaching, we're looking, if we're honest, for the man of imitation, not the man of sorrows. 
In other words, we believe deep down in our bones, deep down in your DNA, in that involuntary place. You know, the place that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to feel it. You just think it. The place that you just involuntary do. We believe deep in our bones that our deepest need in life personally to be happy and to be healthy and to be whatever it is that you want to be or to be relationally, to connect with others or spiritually to connect with God and to connect with his love and his presence and to connect with his power and to connect with him actually using us in life, to connect missionally, your work, and to have a meaningful purpose in life. We believe deep down in our bones, in our DNA, in our nature, at the bottom roots of our being, we believe our deepest need is to improve, to progress, to be better, to do better. And because that's our deepest need, we are always looking for a man of imitation. This is why we're all emotionally bipolar. I mean, I know there's diagnosis of bipolar, and I'm not trying to downplay that, but I am trying to actually share it with all of us. You're all bipolar. All of us. And this is why we are. When we are better and we do better, we're spiritually manic. When we're not being better and we're not doing better, we're spiritually depressed. We need to be better. We must do better. So we look for a man of imitation. Can we have an honest conversation? You know that I'm always going to have an honest conversation. So it's a rhetorical question. You know what the answer is. Uh, I want you to look at verse 2 again. Can we put it up on the screen? For he, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. How many celebrity pastors look like Dumbledore? Or Shrek? How many influential Christian women look like Cinderella's ugly sisters, stepsisters? or Patty and Selma from The Simpsons, or my favorite, Egna Nod from Invincible. Did I mispronounce the name? Yeah, I did. We need to be better. We need to do better. That's why we look for a man of imitation. Can we have an honest conversation? Look at verse 3 together. So he was despised and rejected by men. Why is he despised and rejected by men? Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with Grief. You know what acquainted with means? He was friends with it. It was his friend. There's a psalm that ends with, it's the most dark, depressing psalm in the whole Bible, maybe in all of literature. It ends with this, darkness is my only friend. His friend, this person, is sorrow, grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now I want you to look at verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, he's considered to be cursed by God, a spiritual loser. He's completely spiritually unsuccessful in the eyes of everybody around him. 
So everyone in the ancient world knows this. Everyone in the modern world knows this, that those closest to God live a blessed life. Those closest to God are spiritually successful. So can we have an honest conversation? How much Christianity today, how much teaching, how much worship, how much discipleship, how much mission is about living a blessed life? being spiritually successful. How much communication, how much podcasts, how much stuff going on in the culture is all about living a blessed life and being spiritually successful. Because everyone knows the blessed life, the successful spiritual life, connects with God or the God's. We need to be better. We must do better. It's an addiction. So we look for a man of imitation. Here's the point. Here's the point. When you look for a man of imitation, you're only looking at yourself. And Isaiah 53 wants us to look at someone much more. When you finally see Jesus, the man of sorrows, you can't stop looking at him. I can't stop looking at him. So there is a grizzly in this text. Did you hear it? It was growling in the brush. You could smell it in your life and in your relationships. It's gross. It smells like meat and guts and nasty stuff. You see its indomitable power. You see it in others. You see it in the culture. You see it at school. You see it at work. You see it in the state. You try to outrun it. Be better. Do better. But you can't. Isaiah 53 calls the grizzly sorrows. Plural. It's plural because it is the totality of all sin and misery in the world. It's the full force of sin, the full fury of misery. Sorrows encompasses, it's one of those suitcase words. We talked about last week, the suitcase word being the atonement, where you have the atonement, it's a suitcase, it's a big word, you reach in it and you pull out redemption, you pull out justification, you pull out reconciliation, you pull out propitiation. See how that works? Well, this is another one. Sorrows is a suitcase word. In it, though, is the totality of everything that has to do with sin. Certainly it's debt. Certainly it's nature. Certainly it's enslavement. Certainly it's power. Certainly it's specific expressions and embodiments, personally, relationally, thoughts, thinking, words, deeds, culturally, institutions, families, relationships, everything that's happened in the world. And then it's sorrows. It's the totality of all that is miserable, painful, the wreckage all around us. And Isaiah 53 says, there's a grizzly in the world called sorrows. When you finally see Jesus as the man of sorrows, you can't stop looking at him. 
Verse 4 through 10 tell us Jesus is the man of sorrows. So all 4 through 10. We're going to spend some time in this passage. I think I'm going to do it next week too because at the end it's unbelievable. And I'm like, oh man, that just needs a whole other sermon. So 4 through 10 tells us Jesus is the man of sorrows, which means he took the full force of your sin. And we've heard this before, right? He took the full fury of your miseries. So again, let's listen. Let's, let's think about this. Let's look at it a little bit. So Jesus, the man of sorrows, takes the totality of your sin, all aspects of it, all multifaceted dimensions of it. And he takes all your miseries, miseries plural, so the totality of it, all the aspects of it, all the, multi, the multiplicity of dooms in your life. And he takes the full force of it on the cross and takes the full fury of it on the cross. So, Ty and I just concluded reading the Sermon on the Mount. Just thought you should know this. It happened this past week. We were at the end. We do this in the morning before practice. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached, right? Uh, Jesus, so what is he doing after the Sermon on the Mount? What does he do? You remember? So he starts, we're reading, this is an eight. He starts coming down the mountain, and all the masses are following him. So for three chapters, for a long time, he's on a mountain, kind of like another person was on a mountain called Moses, giving and getting the law. And so this second Moses is on the mountain, and he's explicating the wonders of the law, Right? So here's the guy that's coming down off the mountain. All the masses are following him. And now here's what Matthew says. Are you ready? This is what Matthew says. This is the first thing that happens after his sermon, after the greatest sermon that's ever preached. The first thing that happens after all these laws of covering a blessed life. After all he covers in all that Sermon on the Mount, he goes through the whole law of the Old Testament. He goes through all the wisdom literature of how, what a flourishing life looks like, what a blessed life looks like, what it looks like to connect with God and connect with his kingdom, connect with people, connect with mission, connect with your work. Everything about being a flourishing human being, everything that happens to do with the abundant life, he just explicates it. He exposits it. Everybody's amazed. The first thing that happens, the first thing that happens when it's done, this is what happens. And behold, remember? Pay attention. Behold, pay attention. A leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I don't know how we miss it. I really don't. Do you know how many sermons on the mount I've heard? I mentioned that one dude's been in it for almost two years. Do you know what the point of the Sermon on the Mount is? It's to lead you to the leper. To lead you to you. You're the leper. To lead you to all your sorrows. The totality of your sin the totality of your miseries. And you know what happens right after the leper? It's a centurion, the second most polluted, unclean person on the planet, a Roman soldier, and he heals. 
And then you know what the text says? It's like the floodgates opened. Now all those that have demonic oppression and evil spirits in them, all that are suffering from all kinds of a multiplicity of sorrows and woes and dooms, the text says. Sorrows everywhere came to Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone was saying, I'm a leper. Everyone was saying, I'm unclean. Everyone was saying, I have sorrows. And everyone went to Jesus. And he healed them. It's amazing because it, all the text says that they're disbelieving. They're like, amazing, disbelieving. How can this happen? How can he heal everybody? How can he heal a leper? How can he heal you? How can he take care of your miseries? And the text says, this is when Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 at this point. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. He took our sins and bore our miseries. Jesus is the man of sorrows. So you don't have to be. Let that sink in. I can't stop looking at him. So Brady and Kendall struggle through their rehab, right? I mean, good night. And their goal was to get back into college wrestling. And so they rehabbed hard, and Brady, because he was less damaged, because remember, Kendall's the one that charged the bear and jumped on him. So Brady's the first one to make it back on the team, the first one to have a competitive match. Now, Brady was a national contender, and he loses his match. And he's utterly devastated. I mean, he says that he was doubting himself and he's disappointed and he's sulking as he walks off the mat. And Kendall approaches him, meets him before he gets off the mat, before he steps onto the gym floor. Kendall meets him and says, move forward. And Brady just stares at him. And he says again, move forward. When you finally see the man of sorrows, I can't stop looking at him. You're now free for the first time in your life to truly move forward. To move forward in a marriage, to move forward as a parent, to move forward as a student, to move forward in the midst of suffering, to move forward when someone's sinning against you, to move forward when you're being abused, to move forward when you don't know what's going on, to move forward when you're absolutely uncertain, to move forward when you're anxious, to move forward when you realize what a sinner you are, to move forward in all areas and all aspects of your life. Because when you finally see that Jesus isn't the man of imitation, he's the man of sorrows, and he's the man of your sorrows, I can't stop looking. 
Now you can move forward and actually do life. Let me pray for us.